let me give you an introduction to the passage we're about to read, which is up on the screen in front of you. And tonight's going to be a bit different the way we look at this, because this is one of the parables that uh, it just kind of gets lost in our Western tradition and in the way that we live. We're kind of steeped in, um, in capitalism, and so we, we tend to see everything through those lens. And look, I had to pick something to put on the Facebook thing. I'm not just talking about capitalism tonight, but it's a little edgy and it, you know brought tons of people here. So that's why I did it. Um, what's that? Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about it. Just kidding. Um, the passage right before this, so leading up, kind of Luke chapter 19, leading up to verse 10, is this story uh, where Jesus interacts with this man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a very notorious tax collector. He was kind of a uh, kind of a scoundrel of the community. And Zacchaeus becomes a Christian. Um, he begins to follow Jesus and kind of famously looks at Jesus and says, Look, whatever I've ripped off from people, I'll pay it back fourfold. I mean, it kind of has this dramatic conversion experience. And the thinking would be, for many people around there, that surely, like, surely if Zacchaeus is becoming a Christian, then, like, then anyone, everyone is about to become a Christian. Like, he's the worst person. That Jesus is about to just bring this thing in fully, and everyone is going to come and worship him. And so, with that thought, there were some people around him who... Um, who thought that Jesus was about to do what he would call bring the kingdom, that he would establish his kingdom fully at that time or very soon. Okay? And now what that does with people, let's say that, in our, in our days, let's say that you kind of get news over the radio, which you ought to be very suspect of, but we find out that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And so for Christians, like, that's going to be an awesome day, and... Um, <clears throat> And, and we'd be tempted just to, like, check out. And we'd just start partying and start kind of disengaging from evangelism and, and seeking peace and justice in, in this world. And we'd just kind of check out. Well, what Jesus does is he addresses this parable to people who were already checking out. And there were people right around him in his day. Um, <clears throat> the political scene... When Jesus was in the first century, and even the first part of the first century, early on in the A.D., is that in 40 B.C., so about 40 years before that, this great ruler named Herod had left his country to go to Rome. He had kind of the right people had died ahead of him, relatives and stuff. And so he, was, he had left to go to Rome to assume his kingship. So he left his home country and he went to Rome to be crowned the king. Okay. Now, it also happened with his son, Archelaus, in 4 B.C. After Herod died, uh, Archelaus was, was one of a couple that were kind of in line. So he went to Rome to kind of do battle with his stepbrother to be king. Okay, So there's precedent for this idea that, that a king or that a ruler would leave his home country and go off to get crowned king or crowned ruler or whatever and then come back to kind of where he would normally live or, and that sort of stuff. And so we'll see that in this passage. That's exactly what's going on in here. So that's the background of which Jesus speaks. So let's read this uh, passage and I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump in and start looking at it. Uh, This is Luke 19, beginning verse 11. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. He said, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray and ask God to help us. God, this is a strange passage. It's hard to understand. So we pray that you would, by your spirit, um, come and um, help us to understand it so that we might see what you would have for us in this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as has been the custom this semester, I got a lot of this information from Kenneth Bailey, and this one uh, is no exception to that. So, uh, kind of first things first here. Um, Amina is equivalent to about 100 days' wages. The way that I'm going to, let me set this up first. The way I'm going to talk about this is to kind of just explain this, just to walk through it and say what in the world is going on. And then at the end, I'm going to say what does this mean for us. I think that's the easiest way to look at this. So, Amina is 100 days' wages. It's, it's a big gift that this nobleman is giving to these people. He's entrusting this gift to them. And so the nobleman then is turning around. He's giving a speech to his servants before he leaves to go to the far country and receive this kingdom. And as I mentioned, that, was, that would have been familiar to them. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what Herod the Great did. Oh, that's what Archelaus did. Uh, sure. And he is confident, this nobleman, this master, is confident that he is going to go and receive that kingdom, that he is going to return. He is sure of that. And we see this through him saying, uh, engage in business until I come. Right? And we'll talk about actually that phrase uh, right now. That he looks at these people and he kind of distributes this money to these, uh, to these people and says, engage in trade. And what we have in our English Bibles is it says, until I come back. Now what that does for us is that it kind of begins to set up this thought that Jesus or that you know Jesus is relating himself to this master that the master is saying look here's your piece of money you have this set amount of time to go and make as much money as you can with it go and do it and and uh, you know multiply over and over again like and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to see how well you did that's how we would most of us would naturally read this passage But what he's actually getting at is this idea when he says, engage in business because I'm coming back. Okay? It's not this idea, until I come, like your clock's ticking, uh, see what you can do in this next 90 days or this next period, whatever. Nobody knows the time. But he's saying, I'm coming back. 
Here's money. Engage in trade. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when he looks at them and says, engage in trade? What is he seeking out of his servants? What does he want them to be doing? Well, in that day, much as like in our day, in the Middle East, in the culture in which this was set, there was no such thing as like a stable ruler, a stable king. People were, all, were always seeking to conquer other people. There were always tensions between these tribes and these kind of different areas over there. And that's not all that uncommon in our day, in the Middle East. I mean, it's just like there's some pretty volatile rule, uh, rulers right now. So think about this. Let's say that uh, Ahmadinejad um, is, uh, you know, in Tehran, and he looks at um, some people around him, some servants who are very faithful to him, and he says, look, guys, I'm about to take, I'm about to take a little vacation, okay? And I'm going to give uh, some of you $10,000. And what I want you to do is to go out and set up uh, trade, to go out and conduct business in my name. And so one of them, you know, presumably would go down to the, the street or whatever and set up, you know, His Majesty's uh, rug shop. One of them would go set up His Majesty's china shop, His Majesty's uh, whatever, fur trading shop. I'm just thinking of the natural things. Uh, and so, but what he tells him, he says, but I'm coming back. Go do the business in my name, engage in, engage in trade because I'm coming back. Now, he also acknowledges, and we see this in verse 14, he knows that he's got enemies. He knows that he has people who don't like him. And indeed, it says in 14, um, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation to him saying, after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So there would be a certain group, um, so exit Iran, enter back into biblical story, there would be a certain group of people that did not want this man to actually come back as king. And so their plan is they're going to pursue after him and do away with him or, or do whatever they're going to do with him. They didn't want him to rule over them. So the question becomes this. In the midst of a society in a place where there were some who did not like this ruler, what were these people who had been given this money, what were they going to do? Were they going to be obedient and to listen to the master who had given them this money and said, go out and engage in trade? Were they going to do that and to kind of go publicly set up and conduct business in his name? Or... Were they going to kind of succumb to at least uh, some pressure for people who didn't like him and, and kind of hide and, and stay out of the public arena of pledging their allegiance to this master? So think about it. If you're one of the servants who has received the money, what do you do? What do you do? Do you obey, obey the master, set up public business, and kind of take the risk of of being embarrassed or being shunned maybe by some of your friends or some people around? Or do you wait and see if this guy actually proves to be who he says he's going to be? Do you wait and see if he actually gets the kingdom that he's setting out for and if he is the man that he says he is? Those are kind of the two options. It's a real tension because in their minds, Herod's, King Herod, Herod the Great, he was successful. When he went off to Rome to claim his kingship, he actually got it. He became king. His son, Archelaus, did not. And so here's this man who's, who's saying that's what he's going to do. I'm going to go off. 
It wasn't guaranteed, even though he said he was coming back. There was precedent for not knowing, is, is it going to make it or not? <clears throat> the nobleman wants to know this. And I'm going to say this a couple different ways. He says, are you willing to take the risk to bear my name and openly declare yourself as loyal to me during my absence? Say it another way. Once I return in all of my kingly power, everyone is going to know I'm king. I want to ask you, are you willing to believe that now? Are you willing to put your whole life toward that end right now? Because I'm coming back, and there will not be one person who doesn't acknowledge me as king. I am king, and I'm going to have that confirmed. I'm coming back. What will you do with me now? Get on to verse 15. It says, when he returned, oh goodness, he's coming back. Uh, He did what he said. What does this mean? Well, he returns with his kingly power. And he wants to know, literally, how much business has been transacted. The one in front of us says, um, he ordered them to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. What the passage literally says is, how much business has been transacted? What did you do with what I gave you? Did you go out into the public square and engage in business under my name? Did you run the the rug shop? Did you go? uh, Were you a fur trader? Yes. Um, Did you do it or did you not? He's not asking a question of how much success that you had. He's seeking to discover whether or not they did what he said, whether or not they were willing to align themselves with him publicly. Tell me about your business. What was it like? What was it like while I was gone? What would you do? <clears throat> if the nobleman were to look and see that the, the servant conducted much business. In fact, if, when he comes to him and says that he multiplied it a, a thousand percent, he knows that he engaged, that he took the risk to enter into business in the public square. He was faithful. The other guy comes up at 500 percent. He was faithful. He did what the guy asked him. As we'll see, the third one comes away not. So obviously, an empty book of business would show that you weren't willing, that this guy wasn't willing to take his master at his word. The focus of this whole story is this. The master does not come back saying, how successful were you? He doesn't come back saying, Tell me about your tremendous profits. Tell me about how much you did with how much I gave you. He comes back asking, were you faithful? I gave you ten. You made ten. You made five. Were you faithful with what I gave you? The master is not interested in a capitalistic return. And we're going to talk about in just a second what that means for us, because I hope this is freeing for some of you. He's interested in faithfulness to an unseen master amidst hostility. Um, It's possible then that, you know, imagine the master comes back and he's starting to kind of engage him in this conversation. What kind of business did you do while I was gone? It would be very possible and tempting even. um, And think about if you were in their shoes, you'd say, man... Uh, I took the ten minas that you gave me. 
I took all that money and uh, I hit the marketing hard. And I hired really great people around me. We worked Facebook and Twitter pretty hard. Like, we were really kind of doing everything. And I had a great game plan. I did all of this. And it would have been very possible for the people to start talking about what they did and how they made the money and to, to impress the master. But if you look at, at what they say, that's not what they say. In verse 16 and 18, he says, Lord, your mina made ten more. Lord, your mina has made five more. Lord, your gifts produced the fruit of our efforts. The master was the one who gave them the capital to work with. He gave them the money, and they were simply being faithful to what he had given them. But it was his money that did the work. The master commends them for being faithful then, not necessarily successful. And another way we see that is that their reward isn't privilege. He doesn't turn around to them and say, well, you get, um, you get this big bonus and you get all these other things. He rewards them with more responsibility. He says, well done. You were faithful. Now go and watch over ten cities. Oh, gosh. Like, we kind of think that as like, oh, like he now owns ten cities. Like, no, he just looked. The master looked at him and said, you did well with what I gave you. You're an honest man. You're a, you're a fine dealer in business. Now go and watch over ten cities. The master calls him to more responsibility because he is a faithful man. But what of these other servants? What of the third servant in verse 20? He says that he was afraid of his master. Um, in, in line with the story, uh, it also it kind of likely means that he was afraid to publicly identify himself with this master. And that's a little bit, we don't know that exactly, but that kind of fits what's going on here. He says he was afraid of his master, and he goes on to say um, that you're a severe man, that you're a thief even. And that kind of leaves us to wonder, that doesn't seem to be the master. I mean, he showed up on the scene just giving these gifts to people, a lot of money. Like, what about him is severe? What about him um, would make us think that he's a thief? And the master responds to him and said, look, you thought me to be, in the word no... He says, you knew me. He said, you thought me, you experienced me to be a, a harsh man, a severe man. Okay. Okay, I'm not sure why that is. But, um, well, your reward is, I'm just going to let you think that. I'm going to let you think I'm a, I'm a harsh man, I'm a severe man. And you'll want nothing to do with me. And I won't necessarily, uh, in fact, give me the money that I gave you. I'm going to give it to someone else. And so his kind of reward or, or punishment is just that the master just lets him think this. Lets him think that he's a severe man. He doesn't try to coerce him otherwise. And he just kind of ends there. What we see in that, and we'll talk about how it relates to us in a second, but what we see is that the servant's unfaithfulness with what he had been given began to distort his view of the master. The master had given him what he had given the other people but what this guy actually did with those gifts and those talents began to distort his perception of the master's goodness, the master's kindness. In last uh, verse we're going to look at, uh, actually that's not true, verse 23 <clears throat> says that interest, uh, let me, I'm just going to read the verse. It says, why then, as he looks at the same guy, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And in my coming I might have collected it with interest. 
Uh, this is totally lost on us in Western culture, but interest was forbidden in the Jewish religion. That you weren't to lend uh, to others and receive interest for that. You're supposed to lend generously and let them have money and expect that they return it. But interest wasn't part of their allowable system. And so he's looking at this guy saying, look, if I was a jerk and if I was a thief, like if I was someone who didn't live under this kind of Jewish set uh, set of laws and I was trying to subvert that by being a a thief and and a jerk, then... Why not go out and invest and earn interest for me? Because clearly I have no regard for the law. So go out and earn interest. Why didn't you do that? He looks at the man and he takes his, he takes his money away and gives it to others. He says the one who uh, responds to him with faithfulness will be trusted with more gifts. And the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. And lastly, as far as those who opposed the nobleman, those who pursued him out into the wilderness, who pursued him after he left the city and said that they did not want him to reign over them, the nobleman orders them to be done away with. And the parable just ends there. It's, it's a pretty harsh translation, right? Have them slaughtered. And it just ends. We don't really know what happened. It's a little bit like, uh, actually it's a lot like the parable of the Good Samaritan where this Good Samaritan binds up this uh, hurt, uncared for Jewish man and takes him to this inn and he pays for him to stay there and pays for the guy to to heal him and all this stuff. But then um, the story just kind of ends and we don't know if he ever like leaves the inn or he dies. We don't know. It's open-ended and it's kind of called, brings us into the story and says, well, what are you going to do? Like, Who's your neighbor? Who are you going to care for in that way? In the parable of the prodigal sons, um, the older son is, is distanced from the father because he's good and he's angry that the father would love the rebellious son. And it just kind of, the father goes out and invites him into the party and the parable just ends. And we don't know if the older son comes into the party. It, it kind of forces the reader to say, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And this parable is the exact same way. That the nobleman pronounces the judgment. He says, and as for those who turned away from me, have them slaughtered. They don't, they don't love me. Clearly they want nothing to do with me. Friends, you are either on the side of a king or you are against him. And you can look throughout history and see that. Kings have one, one goal, and that is to rule and conquer. You're either with the king or you're against him. And this nobleman is echoing that very thought. Okay. So the questions that we have to consider in this passage are this. The Bible teaches that Jesus came once, that he was a historical figure who came and lived, and that he died and that he was resurrected, and that right now Jesus is in heaven. He's with God, but that one day Jesus is going to come again to set up his earthly kingdom fully. So that's, that's nothing RUF says. That's, what, that's the message of the Bible of historic Christianity for thousands of years. So that is what Jesus is, that's his baseline of interpretation in this. And in the meantime, what he does is he gives gifts and talents to people who follow him, his servants, if you will, those of us who serve him. Jesus gives us gifts. He gives us things for us to be good at and to look around to serve this world with. 
He gives you talents. He gives you brains. He gives some of you athleticism. He gives others of you kindness. He gives some of you musical abilities. He gives some of you uh, the gift of evangelism to go out and share the good news of Jesus very winsomely and not uh, don't be a jerk about it. He gives us all sorts of different gifts to people in His church. And so what I want to say is that if you're a Christian, the question that this presses us toward, and I, don't, I know some of you aren't Christians, but the question that this presses you to if you're a Christian is, are you going to be obedient to Him now? Or are you going to wait and see? Are you actually going to take Him in His word that He is, that he is the King? And that He is right now ruling and reigning over this world from heaven, and one day He's going to come back and rule and reign on earth. And it will be apparent. So are we going to submit to that now and follow Him now and let our gifts and the things that He's given us be used for the advancing of His kingdom of love and peace and purity now? Or are you going to wait? Second thing, are you part of a church where your gifts can be used? RUF is not the church. We are not a church. We are part of the church. And so um, what I want to say is I'm glad you're here. My, my hope and dream is that you would be part of a church where you can serve. Now, that may mean that you're serving here through RUF because, again, we're tied to the church. But, like, does your church actually know you exist? Is there anyone there who knows when you won't go for two months? You've got to consider that. Like, are your gifts being used? Are you somewhere where they can be used? And the big question this is really pointing us to is the question of this. Are you willing to take the risk and declare yourself aligned with Jesus right now? In this life, amidst hostility, you know, and for a long time, kind of in America, we have to say, well, there's really not much persecution. You know, it's kind of like if someone looks at you weirdly. But, like, actually... It's becoming more, our culture is becoming more and more hostile to the gospel, to Christianity, to following Jesus, to, to aligning yourself with the Bible. And so there's a real question for you if you're a Christian, like, are you actually going to publicly live this or not? What are you going to do with that? Everyone's going to one day see him. Everyone is going to one day say, yep, that was right. The Bible was true. What Jesus said was not crazy. The question is, will you do it now? Another thing we ought to consider is, when you actually have gifts, like when you are gifted musically or with wisdom or with hospitality and other, these other things, and you kind of get those on display and your, your shop is selling a lot of goods, do you just take all that glory for yourself? Or are you willing and actually thinking, you know, God gave me this gift. God gave me a voice. God gave me kindness. He gave me this disposition. Um, and I'm really just His servant. I'm really just here because, because He loves me and gave me this. I don't, I don't deserve it. I don't know why. Or are you using all of the things He's given you for your own glory? Some of you live for your resumes. Some of you live to have other people tell you you did a good job. And I'm right there with you. I am no different than you. question is, will you acknowledge that God gave those things to you or not? Nextly, are we willing to 
<clears throat> I'm sorry. Does the way you live your life in some way rebellion against Jesus, in some way uh, kind of knowing him, or perhaps if you grew up in the church yet you just don't follow him that much or as much as you should or whatever that's going on in your life, um, doesn't that kind of make you think that Jesus, you now you think Christians are just judgmental? And you kind of start to not like the Bible because you think it's just a list of rules and it's really judgmental. It's really fascinating to me how often people who kind of know a little bit about Christianity yet turn or walk away to some degree, they now have all of these things against Christianity like the Bible is this mean book and that um, Jesus is this demanding person and he actually isn't the, the Jesus the Bible says, but he's something else. Like, I just want to let you know that the way that you live influences the way that you think about Christ. And so if you find yourself kind of angry with the gospel, if you find yourself not really liking the Bible that much, um, there can be legitimate questions there, but part of it is you have to realize, like, you're only going to know that he's a good master when you're under his mastery. Like, when you're under his kingship, you see he's a good king, then you'll get it. But when you're outside the kingdom and you're kind of looking in saying, dude, he's a king. Like he, I've never known a good king. That's going to be that tension. And so the way you live can influence that. Finally, as you look at this last, um, uh, you look at this last person here, this, this kind of group that Jesus looks and says, you know, basically, you know, take their heads off, go off and slaughter them. It ends open-ended, and that's very much uh, on purpose. Because if you find yourself tonight as someone who, I mean, who does that practically? I'm not saying that you necessarily hate Jesus, but you, it, you aren't wanting him to reign over you. That's what, they're, that's what Jesus calls an enemy. Someone who doesn't want him to reign and to be, the, to be your king. Jesus says that's an enemy. And he looks and says, your judgment has already been pronounced. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. Like that is clear in scripture that to turn away from God, like the the sentence has already been pronounced. But friends, the second half of that verse in Paul says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if we're to think about this parable, think the first half of that has been laid down. That the judgment, if, if you don't consider yourself a Jesus follower, you, you don't consider yourself to be under his kingship, it's not done. There's a second half to it that says, he's a good king. And he is a gracious master and he gives gifts to his people. And he loves his people and he sends his spirit to be with his people. And his kingdom is not an evil kingdom. And he calls Christians to go out into the world and pursue righteousness and to seek the peace and prosperity of others and to change and subvert this world through kindness. So I simply want to say, Jesus is inviting you to that. And the biggest gift that he gives you is eternal life with him. So if that's not you, if, if that's not true of you, I wonder what it would look like if you began to believe that. And if you're a Christian, I wonder what it would look like if you actually took Jesus at his word here. If you really began to live as if he is the true king of this world, who is going to come back. And he was going to look at us and say, what did you do with what I gave you? Did you were you faithful? Look, some of you 
aren't super gifted, you do a few things well, do them well, that's all you're called to do. If he's given you two things you're good at, be good at two things. Some of you have a number of talents. It's astounding what some of you can do. Are you using those things for the good and the advancement of God's kingdom and for the good and welfare of those around you? That's what this passage is calling us to. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would come and apply this to our hearts, that you would convict us, uh, some of us who need to be convicted and kind of brought out of our laziness. There are some here who don't know you, and I pray that you would reveal yourself to them even right now as a good king, as a good master who loves your servants and who gives good gifts and who is not cruel, but who loves and serves us to the extent that you lay down your life for us. And I pray that we would be changed by that message. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.